Turn to Mark chapter 5, Mark chapter 5. If you don't have a Bible, um, you know, you can go on the App Store and download um, a copy of the Bible. Or we do have physical copies available for you to your right. And you can grab one and you will need one because as a church, we absolutely value um, the scriptures and we value them and one of the ways we express display our value to them is that we want you to see um, what we're talking about and what we're discussing and so I want it in front of you and throughout my time I'm going to be saying look at look at look at verse this look at verse that and all of that yeah all right Mark chapter 5 oh we're going to be looking at one of the most well-known stories um, ever written involving Jesus. And because of time, because of time, I'm not going to be able to read the whole passage and the whole story, um, but that's not going to be a problem because we're going to walk through this passage line by line um, and you're going to see um, the text come to life. And so let's pray and after we pray, we'll get right into it. Father, thank you so much for this time. <sighs> thank you. You are at work in our lives personally. You're at work in the lives of the people that are gathered in this room with us. You're at work in this city and you're, work, and you're at work throughout the world. And so as we reflect on Jesus, your son, the King, may we as always grow to love him more and desire to see others know him. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. So before this all, if you guys were here last week, um, Bob Gilchrist done a fantastic job um, preaching about Jesus' encounter with the man who was demon-possessed um, and all of that. And so after all of this happens, after this eventful few hours of ministry in that region where Jesus radically changes this man's life, um, he makes his way back home to the region of Capernaum. And as soon as Jesus, as his boat pulls up on the shore, a large crowd greets him. Large crowd greets him, and that is something that is not abnormal. It's normal. Jesus is at the point now where he is super famous, and so if he was around in our day and age, you could imagine um, as soon as he ends up going to a particular location, people just gather around him. There's paparazzi just flashing cameras at him. There's just so many people um, gathering around him. He's become a magnet. Um, for so many people. Why? Because Jesus has been teaching powerfully and he's been performing um, incredible miracles. And so at this point, as he's interacting with the crowd, something takes place that causes many in the crowd to gasp. A man named Jairus, okay, forces his way through the crowd 
And what happens next is he falls on his knees before Jesus and begins to beg Jesus for help. This incident leaves the crowd astonished. Why? Because of who Jairus is, okay? Look at verse 21. In verse 21, he's described as um, one of the rulers of the synagogue. The rulers of the synagogue back then were highly respected um, men in the community. And they were men viewed um, as men of great prominence around town. Also, what's interesting about these leaders of the synagogue is Jesus didn't have the best of reputation with them. If you can remember, in the past few chapters, Jesus has been involved in doing ministry in the synagogue. And at times, he's, quite, he's caused quite some controversy in the synagogue. And so at this moment, he doesn't have the best of reputation with them. And the synagogue leaders are kind of a little skeptical about who Jesus is. They, they've heard about the miracles, but they're not comfortable with how much attention um, he's getting from the crowds. And Jairus was one of these men. He was a leader. He was a ruler of the synagogue. He was a key man in the community, a man of great honor and a man of great respect. That is why there's this gasp amongst the crowd as he comes, squeezes his way through the crowd and bows his knee before Jesus. But at this moment in his life, Jairus is a desperate man. And he's willing to swallow his pride and humbly fall on his knees, possibly his face, before Jesus in the sand, right? There wasn't no concrete then. They were on the shores of the sea. And so this man, who's high, great prominence, comes, bows his knees in the sand and, and before Jesus. And the reason why he does this is because he cares far more about the person he loves rather than the reputation he has. Look at verse 23. Jesus, my little daughter, is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. This is why Jairus decides to approach Jesus in this way. He appeals to Jesus for his little girl. The Greek term used for the word daughter here um, can be translated as my infant daughter. Okay? Uh, even though she's 12 years old, we're going to find that out later, and she's growing up, according to Jairus, like with every dad, she is still his baby girl. I have two girls. Okay? I have two girls. One is five. Did I get that right? And one is... My wife, it's helpful having your wife here. Yeah, five. And Eden's nearly three, about two and a half, right? My baby girls. And I've heard it said to me um, by fathers who have older daughters that as they grow, they will always be your baby girls. Like, they just really will. And I absolutely believe that as they grow. Um, Eden thinks she's a big girl now. Yeah, <laughs> big 
girl. And I'm like, no, you're still my baby. And all of that. All right. And so this is what's going on. Little daughter. She's saying, Jesus, come and help my little daughter. She's at the point of death and I need your help now. So here's a religious leader who is desperate. He's also very much powerless. How does Jesus respond to his plea for help? Verse 23 lets us know this. Verse 23 lets us know this. And he went with him, and the great crowd followed him and thronged about him. Jesus responds like a fireman or a medic responds to an emergency call. He drops everything he's doing and hurries to Jairus' home. No matter who you are, no matter how educated, experienced, talented, and capable you are, there will come a time in your life where you will be powerless to change a situation. That's just the reality. There will come a time where your resources will not be enough to help you. And it is in these moments where turning to Jesus for help will become your only available option. And as you run to Jesus and fall at his feet in prayer, just like Jairus did, you'll soon discover that Jesus should have been the very first person you should have called on for help. So as they're on their way, something unexpected happens that stops Jesus dead in his tracks. It causes him to stop, look around, and shout out, Who touched me? Who touched my robe? And so his disciples look at each other, and with expressions of confusion on their face, say to him in verse 31, Jesus, like, you see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, who touched me? In other words, Jesus, you're surrounded by a ton of people wanting to get your attention, and for you to say that someone touched you just doesn't make sense. Duh! What Jesus knew, they didn't know. Something supernatural had happened that only he was aware of. Who touched Jesus and why did he make such a big deal out of it? Look at verse 25. It lets us know that. Um, and there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years. This was the person that touched Jesus. She's an unnamed woman who has a severe illness. Her illness is described as a discharge of blood. And this condition made her an outcast of society because her illness, according to the Old Testament, made her unclean. She was required to remain on the outskirts of society. And so what that meant is that she had to stay well away from people. For 12 years, 
verse 26 lets us know. Look at verse 26. Let's us know that she had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had and was no better, but rather grew worse. She had an, an abnormal condition. Um, I remember growing up, I think I was 17 or 15 at the time. My mom's here, by the way. She'll correct me if my wife is here, my mom is here. You guys are going to get all the facts today. Um, I was growing up, I, 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 I got this rash on my face and my neck, right? And it was an extreme form of, I don't even know, acne or whatever. And so that was my initial thought. I was like, yeah, I'm a teenager getting something on my face and everything. And so we went to the doctor and the doctor looked at me and was absolutely like confused. He was like, I don't know what this is. This is an extreme condition and it's very abnormal and I don't understand it. And so what he did was he, um, um, he um, requ requested that I go and see a specialist, right? And so the doctor couldn't fix it. And so the doctor said, I don't know what I'm doing. And so he sends me to a specialist. Specialist looks at me and goes, man, I've never seen anything like this. So he sends me to this research laboratory, you know? And so it's going on and on, right? And um, thankfully, I just held on and they found something and it was something I was eating or whatever. And I was able to get onto some meds that helped me. But if all, if all of these stages and all of these people would have kept saying they couldn't help me, what I would have probably done, like most people with um, abnormal conditions, is jump on a plane, right, and go to some remote part of Asia or wherever and try and find a treatment that would help. Right? In our day and age, that happens a lot, where some people, if they can't find a cure to the doctor, they go to a specialist, they go, and this is kind of what's happening with this woman. She's gone everywhere, and she's spent all of her money to try and find a cure and treatment for her discharge of blood, and there's nothing to help her. For this woman, she's tried everything, and there's no treatment, vaccine, or cure available for her illness. It was incurable. But after hearing about Jesus, the miracle worker, she is presented with a glimmer of hope. And so she refuses to remain on the outskirts of society. She forces her way through the crowd and makes contact with Jesus' robe. Why did she touch Jesus' robe? Look at verse 28. It fills us in. It said, for she said, if I touch even his garments... I will be made well. In those days, it was believed that the clothes of holy men, and especially the fringes um, of these men, the, the tassels of these holy men, were thought to possess miraculous power. And so she knew this, and she had heard enough about Jesus to believe that if I could only touch the edges of his robe, I may be healed. And so, after she makes contact with Jesus' robe, 
to her utter amazement, look at verse 29. It tells us, immediately the flow of blood dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. This is why Jesus suddenly stopped, looked around and shouted, who touched my garments? Verse 33 lets us know, look at verse 33, that the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. But Jesus, what he does next is amazing. He eases her fears because she realizes that I can't be in a crowd, okay? I was not allowed to be with people and I wasn't even allowed to touch a man like Jesus. And so Jesus eases her fears, looks her in the eyes and says to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. And so what's happening here is that Jesus identifies her faith as the thing that brought about healing. And for you and for me and for so many people, faith is a concept that is kind of misunderstood, right? Um, some view faith as this mystical force a person can tap into to get God to give them what they desire. Other people view faith as this currency, this kind of money. The more you have, the more you get from God, right? You have a lot of faith, you're going to get that car, man, right? Have enough faith, you're going to get that house. Or if you have an amazing amount of faith, you will, if you're not married, you will be able to find and marry the most attractive man or woman in the world. Just have faith, believe. But legit, genuine, and biblical faith doesn't come from us. It's actually a gift God gives. Faith is something God plants in us. Faith is also active. The lady, the woman, um, she, rather than remaining in isolation, her faith right, became an action. She stepped out of her hiding and pursued Jesus for healing. Faith is also based on truth outside of ourselves. Um, she had heard about Jesus, about his power to heal, so her decision to force her way through the crowd was based on the truth she knew about Jesus. So faith is a gift, faith involves action, and faith is, faith is based on truth. And this woman's faith in Jesus provided her with what she had been longing for. And so my question to you at this point is, what do you desire? What are you longing for? What do you desire that you do not have? Maybe, like the woman, there's something you really, really want and in the past you've done everything you can to get it but all you've encountered is disappointment after disappointment all of your efforts and resources have not been enough to attain what you desire when you are desperate and powerless is when you realize that Jesus should have been the very first person you should have called on for help. 
physical healing is not always guaranteed by God this side of eternity. But spiritual healing, that is a relationship with Jesus, is a guarantee for all those who reach out to Jesus. For most of us, and as I was studying this, it was really convicting for me. Um, for most of us, we want Jesus to move powerfully in our lives. Okay? We recognize that where we're at and the relationship we have with Jesus is not as healthy, it's not as vibrant as we would want it. We want God to move powerfully in our lives. We want to experience the joy and delight and peace he promises. But the question I found myself wrestling with is, like the woman, okay, are we willing to risk it all in order to experience Jesus to the fullest? Are we willing to run hard after him? Are we willing to make the necessary sacrifices in order to experience healing and power that comes from Jesus. Most of the time, if you're like me, I'm comfortable just being on the outskirts of my relationship with Jesus. But like this woman, are we willing to risk it all? Are we willing to take steps of faith in order to experience the transforming power of Jesus. Let's never be content with where we currently are at with Jesus. He has, in his grace, in his power, in his love, provided us, okay, with an amazing relationship with God in the most important and important thing we can do is to respond to all that he's done for us by running hard after him and it's going to take sacrifices it's going to take a total life change for us to experience Jesus to the fullest so my encouragement for you, and as I speak it, I hear it for myself, is for us to run hard after Jesus, to us, for us to love him with all of our heart, all of our mind, all of our resources, all of our time, all of our talents, all of our everything. Let's not settle. Let's not settle for the mediocre relationship with Jesus. Also notice that Jesus refers to her as daughter, right? Isn't that amazing? As far as the community is concerned, she was the woman, right, with the discharge of blood. But here Jesus looks at her and refers to her as daughter. And that's what God does, doesn't he? 
when he, when he saves us and he looks at us, we're no longer um, the, 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 the alcoholic. We're not, no longer the person that was promiscuous. We're no longer um, the rebel. Jesus looks at you when he saves you and calls you son and calls you daughter. Your identity in Christ is also changed and transformed when you encounter Jesus. Verse 33, look at it. While he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, your daughter is dead, why trouble the teacher any further? Wasn't easy for Jairus to publicly ask Jesus for help, but he was willing to put his reputation online. Willing to put his reputation on life for his beloved daughter. And after receiving the news, he had been dreading ever since his daughter fell ill. Tim Keller is right in saying that he must have become numb with grief and horror. What bad news to receive. So, such bad news. Uh, a few moments ago, as he was making his way to his home with Jesus, Jairus was hopeful, but when Jesus decided to stop to heal the woman and the messengers came with the bad news, Jairus just about lost his faith. But just before all hope was lost for Jairus, Jesus looks directly at him and restores his hope with these words. Verse 36. It says, Jesus says to him, do not fear, only believe. Do not fear, only believe. No one is immune from bad news or disappointment. 2015, my wife and I made our way to London quickly because we had heard that my grandma was in hospital and fighting for her life. We went to see her and everything seemed to be going well, okay? Everything seemed, seemed to be going well. The next day, I was staying at my in-law's house in London and it was about 7 a.m. My wife wakes me up and lets me know that my grandma had passed away. In that moment, it's all a blur now, but what I remember of it is this numbness of horror mixed with frustration that had come on me. No one is immune from bad news or disappointment. And I'm sure in this room, okay, right now in this room, all of you have been recipients of bad news. We all have and we will encounter many forms of bad news. You may experience a job loss, relationship breakup, complications um, with pregnancy, a shocking diagnosis from the doctor, the death of a loved one like I experienced, whatever bad news you receive, whatever bad news you receive, 
know that in that moment, Jesus will be with you and he will repeat the same words he spoke to Jairus. Do not fear, only believe. Do not fear, only believe. And maybe in this room, there are some of you who are nursing the pain and the shock of bad news. Some of you are currently feeling the disappointment and pain of bad news. And in this moment, and it's hard, it's hard. And I'm sure Jairus, these words Jesus spoke to him, he didn't hear it then because he was so overwhelmed and overcome by the pain and shock of the bad news. But if you're here you're nursing the pain of bad news you've just received in this moment, picture Jesus saying to you, do not fear, only believe. Do not fear, only believe. Jesus' words of encouragement to Jairus move from mere words to action. He leaves the crowd behind and hurries to Jairus' home. Look at verse 38. It says, They came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. Back in that culture, I'm sure some of you guys are aware of it. They had people that actually were paid to come to your funeral and cry, okay? Like we pay for DJs to come to our weddings and play a few songs and not kill the vibe. You gotta get a right DJ. We have one, his name's Jeffrey, if you ever need a DJ, all right? All right? But they paid people to come to funerals and cry and mourn. Apparently they just were experts at it. Incredible. Look at verse 39, and when he had entered, he said to them, why are you making a commotion? That is he, Jesus says to them, why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. Let's not miss this, okay? Let's not miss this. The words Jesus spoke, the child is not dead, but sleeping has to be one of the most encouraging truths for Christians. Because what Jesus is saying here is that to the Christian, death, the thing we all fear, okay? Death is like sleep. Why? Because it's not the end it's the beginning of an eternity with our Savior Jesus. While we sorrow and grieve over the loss of another Christian, we also rejoice knowing our loved one has entered heaven. American evangelist and pastor D.L. Moody once told his church this, and this is fun. 
He said, someday you will read in the papers that D.L. Moody is dead. Don't you believe a word of it? Because at that moment, I shall be more alive than I am now. For believers, this is hard, okay? Funerals are an occasion not just to mourn and grieve the death of a loved one, but celebrate the life and afterlife of someone dear to us. Overriding the pain and grief we feel is a conviction that this person, because of their faith in Jesus, because of their faith in Jesus, this person is in a better place. They are alive and fully satisfied in the perfect presence of Jesus Christ. So Jesus goes and corrects these professional mourners and tells them that this girl is not dead, but she's only sleeping. And how do they respond? Verse 4, he tells us that they actually laugh at Jesus. They're like, hey, <laughs> like, we're the professionals, right? We're crying because we got employed to cry and you're telling she, she, she's dead, she's not dead, she's sleeping. You are out of your mind. You are completely out of touch with reality, Jesus. So they laugh at him. And this is the laughter of scorn. Jesus then does this. He invites the child's mother and father along with his disciples to the room where she lay as they step into the room. As they step into the room, they are exposed to one of the most traumatic and I'm sure devastating scenes a human being can be exposed to. And it's the uh, lifeless corpse of a child. Okay? Never experienced it. Some of you may have, but I've been told it's a truly gut-wrenching experience. And as Jairus and his wife see the lifeless corpse of their beloved daughter for the first time, you can imagine their reaction. You really can. She, she possibly bursts into tears, um, turns away because she just can't bear and see her daughter. Jairus responds the same, but possibly musters up enough courage, right, uh, and to embrace and bring strength and comfort to his wife. And as they weep uncontrollably, they're soon interrupted by something unusual that happens next. They notice Jesus walks slowly towards the child. They're then left confused as he reaches out, takes their daughter by the hand and says to her, verse 41, Talitha kumi, which means, little girl, I say to you, arise. Already perplexed by what they've just witnessed, what they're witnessing, they're then stunned and astonished by what they see next. Verse 42, and immediately the girl got up and began walking. Verse 42, did you guys just like read that? Is that am I reading? Like when we read the Bible, this, these are not fairy tales, okay? These are actual historic events that happened. 
verse 42. And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age, and they were immediately overcome with amazement. Of course, absolutely blown away by what they've just witnessed. This story has several interesting contrasts. The woman was an outsider. Jairus was an insider. She comes secretly. He comes publicly. Okay? She comes to Jesus. Jesus goes to Jairus' home. And that's just an amazing truth. So much truth in that. The fact that Jesus goes to Jairus' home. And that is kind of an example for us to go and visit the sick, right? And the elderly and all of that. But that's for something else. She, she is not named, but Jairus is named. But what they both have in common is that in their moment of desperation, and at the time they felt most powerless, is exactly when Jesus worked most powerfully in their lives. Their faith in Jesus, not in themselves, is what enabled them to experience his divine power in their lives because faith in Jesus, faith in Jesus transfers divine power to those who are utterly powerless. With Jesus, there is hope even in hopeless situations, with Jesus, there is life, even in death. Jesus is the conqueror over disease and death. This miracle and every other miracle Jesus performed illustrates how he met and helped all kinds of people. And it gives us assurance that he is able to help us today. Jesus is not a historical figure just stuck in history somewhere. He lived a sinless life, died the death, right, of a sinful man. But guess what? Three days later, he rose again. And what that means is that Jesus is currently, right now, alive and well. And he is working powerfully in all of our lives through his spirit. Now, if Jesus has power over death, surely... It would be madness to ignore him and say, um, I'm just not interested in this. Or, eh, don't really believe this. It's not for me. It's for other people. If Jesus is really who he said he was and did what he said he did, right? Then it would be absurd. It would be madness to ignore him. The truth is, one day, you and I will die. And after the evidence we've just seen, the question we must ask ourselves is this. Can I, can you trust Jesus with your own death? Let's pray.
Jesus, thank you for revealing who you are to us. You care so much for us. And you have not only displayed your care and your love and your compassion to the people, Jairus and this woman, but you are able and willing to express your love and your care for us. And so I pray for every individual here, no matter the situation they're in, no matter how powerless they feel to change the situation, I pray that you would inspire them to reach out to you. And when they do, Jesus, may you help them see how you respond. How you respond to their act of faith to reach out to you. In your name we pray, amen. So we're going to enter a time where we call it a reflection time. This is a time for you to reflect on everything that you have heard. I know we've been here for a long time, but do your best to focus. What you could do is have the Bible in front of you and read some of the, the passage itself or if something stood out or you can begin to pray and you can begin to ask Jesus to help you have faith to trust and believe. And as you do this, as you spend this time reflecting on all that we've talked about, Remember these words by Jesus. Do not fear, only believe. Do not fear, only believe.